folklore, the beliefs, traditions, and culture of the people. Passed on in the most part through the spoken word, folklore expresses our values, our shared ideas with others. It is both how we were and how we are. Without a record, our customs and traditions may become lost to us in the present, but under the surface, we still draw on them. We still know. It's time to recall our forgotten history and to record the new. This is the Folklore Podcast. Sometimes, when we go back into history, we find some characters about who there is something unusual. In all other ways, they are quite what you would expect, but then there is a bit more. Consider the case of a middle-class woman from 1607. She is well-educated. She can read. She can diagnose illness and discuss its progression. But then... She is said to have used magical books and summoned fairies. I'm Mark Norman, a folklore researcher and author. In season one of the Folklore Podcast, we looked at modern fairy sightings. Today, we look at witch trials in the 17th century and a curious link to the world of the Fae. Joining me as the first guest of season two to discuss this case is John Canico James. John is a writer and historian living in London. He is a tour guide at Shakespeare's Globe Theatre and also presents guided walks around some of the fascinating and macabre sites of the city. John has a particular interest in the history of magic and the medieval church and studies medieval folklore and the history of ghosts using predominantly original 16th and 17th century manuscripts and documents from some of London's most exclusive libraries. In today's episode, John discusses his work and the particular case he has stumbled upon with which I opened today. As usual, I began by asking John a little about his background. My big interest area is the social history of the supernatural. So I'm interested in the supernatural as a part of people's everyday life. And I think it kind of marries up quite well with folklore because, I mean, a huge part, people's lives are a huge part of folklore and how people lived is a huge part of folklore. And sort of I know a couple of people who are anthropologists have interest in this sort of thing as well. Uh, my big interest in all types of history, though, is social history. Uh, governments and wars don't really do it for me. But what does interest me is people. And I've always sort of had the belief that if these ancient Greek geniuses can measure the world with a bunch of sticks and they can make all these advanced calculations from shadows and that sort of thing, that people living at that time, at sort of the great era of the witch trials, for example, which is kind of in England, it's really mostly sort of like 16th century to late 17th, when in fact really in some ways to mid-17th. Um, those people weren't stupid. 
And if you think about the era they were living in, they definitely weren't stupid, you know. This is the era of whether, you know, of the Enlightenment, you know, the ground of the Royal Society being created. And so I'm interested in the supernatural as how it comes into people's everyday lives. Um, one of my big things that I love particularly is witchcraft and the sub area of witchcraft and I discovered it literally by accident is the way that the witch trials is sometimes involve fairy law and belief in the fairies because I am not a believer in the idea that there is some pre-Christian pagan religion preserved in the witch trials. Uh, I'm very mainstream on that, very middle of the road. I, I think that sadly Christian culture effectively obliterated that by the time of the witch trials. But that doesn't mean you're not able to see something very interesting. And so there is a case that I discovered literally by accident that had sort of gave me an opening into this brilliant world of fairy belief in the witch trials. Okay, now I know that a great deal of your research is done with original documentation. Absolutely. Um, archives in libraries. You were telling me earlier that you've read through 240 uh, Yes, to do, yes, absolutely. For my research for a paper I delivered at ASAP in Bristol uh, earlier this year, I, I did, I read through 240 early modern pamphlets that featured fairies. Um, some of them were tiny mentions, a couple of them were plays, but I, there's a huge body of really, really interesting stuff that um, I just, I, I have a, a massive sort of notebook full of all the research I found and I, I'm only just scratching the surface of it. I write about it in articles, I read it in my blog but there's so much really interesting stuff there. Absolutely, and and what's great about this sort of research as well, and we find this with other people that we talk to, is that people who are accessing these types of documents are bringing forward material that is rarely seen or looked at or discussed by people until somebody sits down and tries to interpret three, four, five hundred year old scratchy handwriting on a piece <laughs> of paper and, and bring it into modern English for us to understand. Um, and that's what makes these cases so interesting and it's the depth of the folklore within these cases that's fascinating. Now, you were looking at a number of different cases but you'd like to focus on one particular case. So, tell us which case it is that you're looking at. Ah, uh, now, for me, very, I mean, for me personally, I want to say this isn't for me in this is my argument about how the whole field is. For me personally, there was one case from which my whole study of fairies in the witch trials came out and that sort of blossomed it all out for me. And this is the case of Anna Taylor and Susanna Swapper in Rye of 1607. And the town of Rye is important because it, it's one of the Sankports. In fact, it, what it is, is in inverted commas, an ancient town. And so... As an ancient town, it had the rights of a Sankport. They could conduct their own sorts of trial uh, using the Jurat, which was their sort of ruling committee. And they were able to do uh, trials without going to the Assizes. And that's really important for the simple reason that it gives us a volume of recorded material on this trial 
that you don't normally see. I mean, the things I'm going to talk about today, I imagine they existed in a lot more than this. And I've got some examples to show that it certainly wasn't unheard of all over England to have fairy elements in cunning craft and in witchcraft accusations. But if you look at the Assizes, they didn't have very long, these Assized judges, in any one place. They were trying high volumes of cases at a time. And so all of the witch trials you see there, like all, almost all of the other types of trial, they get dealt with in a few lines of text. And it's very common that what you get is, so like three or four lines of formulaic introduction, two lines of actual case information, and then like a line or two of formulaic outro, and at the bottom, various words of sort of results, so cull or non-cull, and other words that might talk about whether somebody was hanged or whether they were put in the pillory, etc., etc., etc. So the Rye case is really, really special because the Rye case, ha well, I have personally so far transcribed 20,000 words on it. There is another set of documents where the handwriting is really bad and I'm just making really slow progress on it. But that's another sort of 12 to 14 documents. So that's at least going to be another 10,000 words. And then there is a manuscript at the British Library that I haven't touched yet. I haven't had time to look at yet. And I don't know how long that is, but it's more material. And so all of this gives us quite a lot of detail on this one case, which is sort of very, very deeply interwoven with belief in the fairies. And it's unusual, as you say, to have so much information about one particular case. And this is part of the difficulty in analysing witchcraft beliefs in the early modern period, and, and particularly what comes out of it in our folk beliefs now is that information, recorded information, was very scant in a lot of cases. But in this particular case, as you say, there is a lot of detail. So tell us a little bit about how fairy belief and fairy folklore was used within that witchcraft environment. One of the things about witchcraft in that environment is that it is still actually very, very Christian. And so we're not talking about people practicing some sort of pagan earth religion, really. Uh, we're really looking at people who are Christians just of another kind, really. They are sort of, they are this other type of Christian who are sort of divergent and they're mixing in folk belief with ideas of magic. So, for example, there's a chap, George Gifford, who wrote his, uh, a sort of a book against witchcraft. And he talks about, here also lieth in cunning women, that is, a most foul abomination. And that is the abusing and horrible profaning of the most blessed name of God and the holy scriptures unto witches, charms, conjurations, and unto devilish arts. Such a one is haunted with a fairy or spirit. He must learn a charm compounded of some strange speeches with the name of God intermingled, or weave some part 
of St. John's Gospel or the like. And that's very average and very sort of representative for how they did things. You see other cunning women of various sorts who kind of introduce fairies into their magic. So, for example, you get sort of a lady who might heal by doing a prayer to invoke to the fairies. In the Scottish trials, which are very... And, and one of the things about this Rye trial, it shows that at least in Rye, at least in this very Puritan sort of little corner of southeast England, things were the same as the Scottish trials. And in the case, for example, you see in another English trial, Joan Tyrry of Taunton, she, again, sort of is this person who gathers magical herbs. And when she's gathering the herbs, as directed by the fairies in visions, she actually says prayers over them. Five Hail Marys, five Our Fathers, and the Creed. In her trial, uh, she sort of confesses on the 14th day of the month of June in the year 1555 at the consistory court of Wells, the said Joan appeared and confessed that the fair varies told her Simon Richards had bewitched his wife and the cattle of the aforesaid David Morris. But she saith since then, that she was last examined, that she had never spoken to the fairies, and thinketh she never shall again, because she had uttered their secrets. And there is an element in the Rye trial, with Anna Taylor pulling back from this belief in the fairies, from this idea that she is a sort of a, a cunning woman who is using fairy law. However, one of the other things about the case is you can see enough about her from ind and independently verify it to know that really she probably was doing fairy magic. Uh, there are enough, I mean, her mother was almost certainly a cunning woman as well again, of a very Christian bent. But for Anna, the fairies, if we are to sort of believe any of the testimony, the fairies were an unbelievably important part of it. And I think a lot of people forget when they look at this area that actually the Christian element within this traditional witchcraft was actually very strong. Oh, Lord, yes. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, again, in the Scottish trials, Agnes Sampson, uh, you know, one of the women at the heart of the North Berwick witch trials of sort of 1589 to 91. Uh, and probably the only one who was actually even remotely doing any magic. Uh, she was very Christian. She had a special prayer that she would say. And that special prayer would not only heal someone, but it, it, was, it would allow her to know if somebody was going to get better or was going to get sick. And so, yes, I mean... There were, one of the big things to remember is that there were definitely people doing magic at the time. It just wasn't the way we think. It wasn't sort of paganism. It was a Christianized sort of personal faith. But there's a crossover, isn't there? And so many people argue that, or so many pagans argue mm. that pagan beliefs were taken and were Christianized by the church. But actually, it's not as clear-cut as that. And there's this crossover period where 
people who are following what we would now call a pagan path or a traditional path are using Christian elements within their work and there's not that clear dividing line between the two. Oh Lord, yes. And I mean, it is fair to say, by the way, at the very at sort, of, sort of the beginning and the spread of the church through Europe, they kind of had this three-pronged approach. Absorb anything you can absorb, tolerate anything you can tolerate, stigmatize the things you cannot absorb. But what they usually tried to do was to first stigmatize the things that cultures themselves didn't like. So if there is an evil god or an evil spirit in your pantheon, oh yes, that's a demon. And, you know, that our god, that he protects you much better against that than um, kind of than, than your gods do. And if there is a custom they can just tolerate, they leave it for later. Once they're a bit more solid, they might come back for it. And But some things do get kind of absorbed in. You know, and uh, the amazing Ronald Hutton at the Witchcraft Museum this October was sort of talking about the evolution of Samhain and sort of how, you know, it sort of wasn't entirely adopted off paganism, but it pig, but the previous pagan traditions, Samhain and Hallowtide, you know, one isn't the son of the other, but, you know, they certainly meet each other at family funerals, uh, you know. So there, there is a little bit, but no, in the sense that um, you you don't have, you know, Christians taking pagan ideas. That's just not how religions develop. No, it's not. And there is there is a spread, mm-hmm. isn't there? Judith Hewitt from the Witchcraft Museum a month ago on the podcast was looking at Halloween customs and, and we yes. were talking about a similar thing. And folklore travels. And it doesn't just travel from place to place. It travels between cultures and it gets oh, adopted yeah. and it gets changed. So let, let's pin that mm-hmm. aspect down a little bit then. Um there are various folklore motifs Absolutely. within fairy belief yes. and within witchcraft use, which are really, really important. So let's have a look at three of those mm-hmm. um, in a little bit more detail from a kind of folkloric perspective. Um, and the first of those motifs really is is the visionary aspect. It's fairies appearing as a vision within this practice. Absolutely. There is... Within all 16th century magic, to an extent, there is this need for visions. And I mean, it's a thing that goes back and back and back. One of the things I'm interested in is the nature of experience at that time and back into the medieval era. Because I think one of the ways that we can understand best the most fantastical aspects of the witch trials is by understanding the nature of experience. And so, you know, even from Augustine, you have these ideas that, you know, the different types of experience. So a physical actual vision, uh, a thing you imagine, a thing that you are taught to imagine in the same way as modern esoteric pathworking, for example, uh, or a dream. All of these things are much more close to reality and to real experience at that time than they are to us. Um, so even in the learned magic, you know, you have various spells that do involve triggering a vision of the fairies. You have spells in grimoires that involve in summoning and invoking fairies. And uh, Catherine Briggs wrote about that, I believe, in an article. Um, but in sort of fairy magic, both in Scotland, there's one of the cases is um, Elspeth Reoch, one of the Orkney cases, a lady named Catherine, is tried, and Andromane 
as well, the magician, his tribe, they have these long dreams and sort of visions of the fairies where they meet fairy people and they sort of go and have relationships with the fairies. And so very often that does start in a dream. But with in this case, with one of the two main women, Susanna Swapper, Susanna Swapper is sick in bed and she is very ill and she start and she has this vision of four spirits and she doesn't immediately know that they're fairies she just at first knows that they're spirits and she sort of wakes her husband up and he sort of wakes up and he's like what i can't see anything and then rolls over and goes back to sleep and she starts asking her neighbor and landlady uh, what she should do and it just turns out that her neighbor and landlady is curiously knowledgeable about the fairies and in sort of at first gives her advice on how to get rid of them and sort of says oh you know say the lord's prayer they'll they'll bugger off it'll be fine but then gradually starts to say oh oh um are they not going have you thought about asking them if they knew where there was any money buried and gradually persuading her to get into this treasure hunting relationship with them um and there's another case oh god it's it's quite early and it's the case about this man uh, who meets a shoemaker on a bridge going into London and the shoemaker sort of says oh yeah you from so-and-so town oh yes well I had a dream where you know the sort of fairy told me where I could find buried treasure but I'm not going to go back there good luck anyway if you if you go back there you can dig it up and the guy does he goes back to his hometown and digs where the dream has said and finds money that he uses to build a church. So there was that, and it's not only a thing with the fairies, by the way, because if you go back into the more northern tradition influenced Christian sagas, then you get these kind of Scandinavian sort of, and sort of generally northern tradition divines, who again, they get sick, they have a dream, and that's a religious experience. So this sort of, the vision while ill had a provenance and visionary traditions of fairies. A lot, although people seem then, like Andrew Mann, to go on and have a more shamanistic relationship with fairies, or maybe perhaps a physical relationship with fairies, I'm not going to pronounce on the existence of these things, um, it does very often seem to start in dreams and visions. So this, this motif of treasure hunting then, which is, is kind of the second of the three motifs that I wanted to look at, how does that fit in with the role of the witches in these cases? Are they deliberately looking to pursue treasure, or is it a byproduct of their conference with the fairies that they find out about this? How does the motif fit in with this folklore? Well, now, um, I, I should name check the research of someone fantastic uh, on this specific thing. Because there's a lady called Annabel Gregory, and she wrote a book called Rye Spirits, which is a beautiful micro-history about Rye and about this case. And she did some amazing sort of financial investigations into the, the second witch, Anna Taylor, who is older, more knowledgeable, wealthier, and she's much more middle class, whereas poor Susanna Swapper, her husband, I, is basically a sort of a low-skilled worker. And... Um, she sort of found out that Anna Taylor, in this case, had had a bit of a, of a really hard financial time, 
that her husband's faction within the town was descending. Uh, basically, the, I think it was the butchers were descending in wealth and the brewers were coming up in wealth. And uh, she had just lost a farm in Weeks Green, which was kind of the neighbouring town. And so, you know, she's got this idea that there's treasure buried on her land. And she let slip that when she was younger, she had a vision of the fairies. And they advised her that if, the, if she would go with them, they would make sure she was brought out of debt. But she refused. And so they never appeared to her again. And that's one of the reasons why in the narrative of the trial, uh, you have sort of her encouraging Susanna Swapper to go with the fairies and to follow them. And so, yes, she is very much deliberately treasure hunting. And it's, it is a thing that a lot of people do at the time. But it's an interesting one because it's a bit of a kind of Henrician throwback, which I, I find very interesting. Because the cases most like it are actually cases of grimoire magicians. Uh, there are these two chaps. Um, they're both called William. One is William Stapleton. They're both these educated, very clerkish kind of men. In fact, William Stapleton is a failed cleric. Uh, he is, in fact, a failed monk who can't get up in the mornings. And he's having a hard time at the monastery. And so he learns magic. He At first, he's using magic to treasure hunt because he's desperate to buy himself out of the monastery. And then various noblemen, and because it, so it starts with the noble clerics, the these knight priests find out, and they start hiring him to treasure hunt for them, and then you know various lords find out about him, and they start hiring him to treasure hunt, and he does though use the fairies, he has magical books with spells for invoking uh, one spirit who sounds like a ghost, and another one who is deaf, who is Oberion. You know, Oberon, king of the fairies. And there is another, sort of in, in one of the manuscripts that Catherine Briggs studied, there is a very straight out kind of modern, sorry, I say modern, that you can tell I spend most of my time looking at early modern books, um, a, a very straight out 16th and 17th century uh, Christian hermetic ritualistic way to summon Oberon. And so... Anna Taylor and sort of Susanna Swapper, they are within a tradition and there is this will not only to treasure hunt, but there is this idea that fairies will bring you treasure. And we know people believed it because uh, there's this pair of con people, um, the Wests, uh, John West and his wife, and their main modus operandi is to persuade various wealthy people that they can get them conversation with Titania. And there's one businessman where they utterly fleece him by getting him to make these really expensive vessels to hold money and by getting him to buy expensive materials and by getting him to a sort of, uh, to buy uh, things that they can use and to pay them money to do spells for the fairies and to give them sums of money they can ritually put away to be doubled. Uh, they also convince this poor serving maid uh, in a house just off the Strand, that they can give her beauty and love and money, and they get her to kneel with a pot that they say will be filled with silver. 
um, and she's nude and it's late at night. And unfortunately, what they do is they rob her. They steal her clothes, which would have been a valuable commodity in and of themselves. And uh, they steal her life savings and run away with the money. Not as bad as a poor apprentice goldsmith where they convince him that, you know, he's going to have a romance with Titania. And they get him at kind of uh, St. Giles area to go out in... And St. Giles now in London is a shopping centre and full of, like, restaurants like Jamie's Italian. Then it would have been quite wild. It would have been marshy, wild land between the city of Westminster and the city of London. And, of course, he goes out there with loads of gold plate and gold and money from his employer ready to meet Titania and be whisked off to a romance with the fairies uh, when they just basically they've hired thugs uh, to beat him up and steal his stuff. I'm just going to deviate slightly and jump yeah. on the point here before we go to the third motif and that's mm -hmm. that looking at these characters of Oberon and Titania Yes. now in real life you're a tour guide at Shakespeare's uh, Globe. Absolutely. So this area kind of resonates. So I, I can't not take the opportunity to just throw in, when you look at these characters of Oberon and Titania and the other fairy elements within Shakespeare's work, uh, yes. how is that drawing on the traditional folklore? Is it a good representation and a good use of folklore in this way? Or is Shakespeare just taking some model characters and using them to his own ends. Well, now it's in it, Midsummer Night's Dream is a really interesting play for a really large number of reasons. Um, it contains weird elements of science fiction. There is a bit where Titania is talking about sitting with her maid on other planets. I think Jupiter and Neptune are the ones they mention. I may be wrong. But like talking about your like yellow beaches on for on like far off planets, um, it's all about the soul of say, the argument between Oberon and Titania that starts the events of Midsummer Night's Dream. It's all about this, this little changeling boy, and that's a very folk motif of sort of the fairies taking away children, and even sort of as as you know, uh, I'll talk about in a bit the, the souls of the dead. It's also a very telling social commentary because the people who are the, the rude mechanicals in it, the trades that they do are basically the lowest trades in a town. So they are trades. So these people, they are tradesmen, but they're not at the same level as, for example, your local brewer. They're not at the same level as your local scribe, etc. These are the trades that everybody gets to laugh at. You know, the commoners get to laugh at them because kind of like, you know, they are trades, but they're a bit crap and they're always poor and haha, look at him. And then the real trades and the nobles get to laugh at them because, oh, look at them. Yes, they're common. They're not as good as us. And so it, it's interesting in all of those ways. For the way he uses Oberon and Titania, the most interesting thing is the way that he very carefully places what his fairies are. Because there's this little blink-and-you'll-miss-it moment, and it's sort of not directly alluded to, where one of the fairies makes it clear that although his fairies must go away by morning, they don't fear the sound of church bells. And that is very clearly locating the fairies as not being demonic. And that was a contortion that kind of divines of the time were going through 
right from the medieval era. And I, I wrote on my blog, in fact, a bit about how they chose the language for fairies and how they applied words for the dead and for demons to fairies, Lamia, etc. Not only that, but how in some of the romances you even have uh, the romances depicting how fairies are not demons, but they pay a yearly tithe to hell. So they're not demons, but they're clients of demons. And I think that's one of the interesting things. Um, Shakespeare's approach to fairy lore itself is very black box. And that's how he approaches everything. The only thing Shakespeare really does, in my opinion, in detail is politics. Um, he goes in quite interestingly into politics. But supernatural elements in Shakespeare tend to be, um, as I say, a black box with a red button on it. And you press here to advance plot, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So the third motif that, of these motifs we were looking at before kind of fits in with this, this aspect of fairies not from a demonic side, but yeah. from the other side. And that's the motif of, of not only believing in the fairies or convening with the fairies, but venerating the fairies, so fairy worship. Absolutely. How does that fit in with our witch? Now, this is one thing. I mean, this is, it's not unique to this, to the Roy case, but it's, it's something you see in a minority of cases, but it, it's interesting the way they do it. Because in the Roy case, basically they take one room of Susanna Swapper's house, and if you think about how small her house must reasonably be, that's a big deal. Um, she is described as having a room above the hallway where they put a shrine to the fairies. And that's the room the fairies live in, in inverted commas, you know, in quotes. And they take offerings up. And one of the sort of things about the relationship between Susanna Swapper and Anna Taylor that makes it ring true for me is the fact that they're, they're not easy partners. You know, they rub against each other. Susanna Swapper is asking, always asking for too much. Um, Anna Taylor is always pushing her to try and get this money and even when Susanna says, oh no, the, the fairies in uh, the dreams and the visions have told me that you're not supposed to ask anymore, she's still kind of pushing a little bit at that. But they, they have a room where the fairies live and they bring up offerings. So at one point Susanna Taylor is trying to get her son to deal with the fairies and her son to have these visions of the fairies. And so he, uh, she gets Susanna to take the little lad up with some flowers, and sort of she leaves, you know, to leave the flowers. But the poor kid, when they appear, he freaks out massively, and you know he's weeping, and sort of she has to take him down out of fright. But you do get this kind of relationship between witches and fairies, where they do have an intimate relationship with them. But it is kind of very worshipful. And Andrew Mann, a Scottish one, uh, you know, Scottish fa um, fairy magician, talks about how he had a romance with the Queen of the Fairies. But it, again, it still got elements of this veneration. And it reminds me, although I'm not in any way an expert of it, in it, in the way that other religions that are sort of, that have elements of Christian influence deal with things. So, for example, things like voodoo and the other sort of Christian-influenced religions that you see 
in sort of some parts of the US and South America, uh, you know, where you have sort of people who have a deep relationship with kind of spirits like the Lua and things. And it's this kind of thing that is a Venn diagram between friendship, shamanism and worship. Um, and so it, it's, you know, it's, it's more than, it's not a one-way relationship, but it's sort of, yeah, it's very sort of fluid in the power balance and all that sort of thing. Now we refer to fairies mm -hmm. a lot here, um, but that's kind of in many cases a catch-all term. Absolutely. Um, because many people will use the term fairy when they might mean fairy, they might mean elf, they might mean sprite, they might mean pixie, they could mean a many of you know, many other things. In the case of the early modern period, I think we we are specifically talking about oh, Lord, fairies. Yes. So can we pin that down a little bit and say what manner of creature are we discussing here when we say fairy? Now that's the interesting thing, because fairies are so liminal. They, by nature, they're very difficult to pin down into one specific box. Um, and so, for example, one of the first uh, Scottish cases was another Orkney case that I looked at. And this was the case of a woman who started having visions of her neighbour. And the neighbour had died but not been properly sort of shriven, not been properly buried, etc. And so she has visions of the neighbour sort of saying that after I died, the fairy's got my soul. And so I'm here, I'm a prisoner of the fairies and I'm being well treated, but I can't leave. And, you know, and if you do these things for me, I'll give you magical boons and I'll help you out. Uh, there is another one, it's another sort of Scottish witch where she has this familiar spirit, almost like a sort of spirit guide even, uh, who is, she says is a fairy, but he's got like a normal human name. And in the same deposition, she also mentions that, you know, he's also a dead man. And so there is this kind of liminality between fairies and the dead. There is this sort of thing about fairies paying a tithe to hell and you know, James the First sort of says they're demonic in his book Demonology. So they are by nature not any one thing. I think because they were a thing that Christianity was never fully able to put in a single box. They are, you know, although I don't sort of, you know, I say that there is no evidence at, by this period of a pre-Christian earth religion, they are of, of an older period and they have survived from this older period and they're rooted in culture. And so to some extent, they defy uh, categorization. They are not of that newfangled Christianity that's only been around, you know, for like just over a thousand years by the time of the, the Rye case. No, and there are various arguments, aren't there, for um, the origin of fairies and fairy lore. Um, Absolutely. Theo Brown, folklorist, argued the case that, you know, it's possibly some kind of folk memory of a long-gone prehistoric race of some kind. Absolutely, it's possible. 
Um, it, it's it's the it's an area I try not to stray into because I, I I deal with with evidence. I deal with things I can hold in my hand that I can kind of say this was this, this was that. Um, other stuff I leave, I leave to sort of people who are fully into folk, as folklorists, who are anthropologists, etc. Because I feel until we have either a textual or a material tradition smoking gun, we can't know. Uh, we can know that they go back quite a way. You know, we can know that, you know, there's, I think it's an 8th or ninth century in the Leech Book of Bald. There's a thing to get, there's a spell to cure elf shot. A little sort of prayer charm to cure elf shot. We know that later on in the medieval period, uh, you a lot of the chroniclers have opinions about fairies, you know, and are very careful to put them in the camp of demons or of spirits or of illusions. Um, but what fairies were originally, I'd be reluctant to come down on any side. And I think we still can be reluctant to come down on any side as yes. to what fairies still are, because well, the folklore yes. continues and is to this day, and and is still, you know, people are still experience similar kinds of things and similar kinds of creatures. Absolutely. Um, in fact, one of the odd things is I've done ghost tours all my life, um, and I have a sort of personal ghost story that I I used to tell because everybody always asks you, have you seen a ghost? You know, I've, I've done these ghosts as part of my tour guiding. Um, and I tell people about a, a strange thing I saw on Swansea Beach. But since I started researching fairies, I have had possibly the oddest experience I've ever had that I had in the London Library while researching uh, Scottish documents for my, the paper I gave in Bristol. When I stood up, I turned around, and within about three or four feet of me, there was standing a man in Victorian clothing. And I looked at him, and my first thought wasn't, oh, this is a ghost. My first thought is, oh, are they filming? And I was suddenly, I was a bit annoyed that I thought I was going to be moved on so they could film. Um, and we gave each other this sort of look of, like, why are you here? What are you doing here? And he vanished in front of my eyes. A solid and totally real gave me no inkling that the, he wasn't just a person, a man in a suit, and then vanished before my eyes. And so, yes, so since I started researching fairies, I've been having sort of odd, possibly fairy, possibly ghost experiences. And that's interesting, isn't it? And do you think, because fairies are this kind of liminal creature, this, this liminal motif or, or symbol within folklore, that by concentrating more on that aspect of your research, you're drawing more heavily on a folk memory or a collective memory subconscious of that creature, and therefore it becomes more meaningful and more prevalent, and, and suddenly you draw on that, and that's why these experiences become more to the fore. It's possible, yes. Because, yes, I, I believe very much in the idea of a sort of folk memory. And it's one of the reasons I find folklore a really interesting topic, and I think it's a very important topic to study. Because, yes, there is there is a memory that cultures have. And things, certain things stay into culture and stay there. And one of the reasons I like um, studying witchcraft the way I do is because in studying fairies in the witch trials, you really have... 
this sort of thing of the people you're studying, they were involved in something. A lot of witch trials, it is politics at a personal or national level, it's debt, it's the psychological thing of uh, shifting blame for, um, for charity that you can't give onto the person, you know, and it's something we still see now in, every, in other aspects of life. And so you very much find yourself sort of thinking, looking at a lot of cases, well, the only person I'm learning anything about is the magistrate. <laughs> you know, I'm learning a lot about this magistrate and his opinions. And there is an aspect of that in the right trial. I mean, you know, we'll never fully know whether Susanna Swapper was just pulling this out of her backside. There is a suggestion that by the time it gets written down in the form I've read it at the, the Jurat sort of trial documents, there are these 23 depositions. By that time, she's told the story like four times, and this is the fourth iteration of it. So there is an element of that, but, you know, these people, they were doing cunning craft they were invoking the fairies. Um, the the things they get accused of, sort of cursing and satanic witchcraft, etc., that's about the people prosecuting them. But you are looking at a thing that somebody really did. You are looking into a tradition that was part of life. And one and sort of once you have that, I think you can understand a lot more about people living at that time and their attitudes and why they did what they did. You've spoken once or twice about fairies alongside the role of the dead. Yes, absolutely. So is there a crossover we need to be examining here between fairies and the dead in this? Well, yes, and I mean, something that this is like someone's huge project. Uh, the crossover between sort of fairies and the dead, that could be a whole area of study in and of itself, because it's not just fairies and the dead. Um, there is a case, a, a chap called Andrew something wrote an amazing book about it. Um, it's on Island McGee. It's very late. It's 18th century and it's a demonic possession case. But it involves the appearance of a boy wearing slightly archaic fashionable clothing and this apparition of this boy. And that's the thing about fairies because they do cross over between apparitions that could well be ghosts. Some of them appear near sort of burial sites and mounds. There is this idea that the creed or various, um, you know, um, Ave Maria, etc., saying these kind of Christian, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say the word spell, prayers, uh, will sort of get rid of them. And so they are very much, there is this, there is this core apparition that is then diagnosed culturally. And it's the culture that diagnoses the apparition. So some cultures you see, for example, a man in green and white might diagnose you as being visited by a fairy. Then if let's say that you do your fairy practice, you do your fairy law, you do herbs and you have visions and you tell people, oh, you're gonna find love, you're gonna get better. Here's the guy who stole your ring. And then one day you get dragged to trial and that will then be re-diagnosed. You'll get a second opinion from the magistrate who will say, oh no, you weren't visited by a fairy. That's the devil. And so, yes, they, they, they are. And it's really worth looking into. I think it's just a fascinating topic. 
uh, that so many of these things have a common experience and it's the culture's reception of them that decides what they are. So to wrap all this up, mm-hmm. we have a traditional culture, if you like. We have a traditional pathway that people are following in witchcraft. Yes. We have within that a drawing on motifs that are very strong in folklore mm-hmm. of fairies and of the fairy realm. Yes. And we have some forms of Christianized and pre-Christianized religions all yes. melded together into this and other similar cases. Yes. As folklorists or researchers or, or people that are interested in that field, what can we draw out of all of this? What is this telling us about how these people operated? For me, one of the biggest things is that living faith is by nature a multifaceted thing. In fact, to be honest, even describing it as facets isn't right, because facets are so separate from each other. The sort of living religions are a bit like a cup of tea. A good cup of tea will have water, milk, tea, it'll be in a cup, and you might add sugar and stir it around. And what makes it a good cup of tea is all those things together. And so that that's what makes it a decent cup of tea. And its teaness comes from that. And if you take your tea black, that's fine. It's still tea. And that's the lesson of fairy law. That living religions, like sort of this undercurrent of cunning craft that is Christian, fairy. I mean, Anna Taylor is special to me because she possibly was using grimoire magic. And there is some evidence that she might have found a way to half-inch some grimoires when the vicar died. Uh, a, a cunning man called Zacharias of Hastings. Some of his books went to the previous vicar, uh, Brace Girdle, and one of the depositions put to her that she refused to answer. One of the questions rather put to her that she refused to answer was, you know, did you uh, get these books? And she's a very educated woman. There are hints she was even practicing um, early chemical magic, uh, empiric medicine as, sorry, chemical magic, chemical medicine, empiric medicine, as they would have called it. Um, But in the same way as kind of modern paganism, it has its ancient Greek Empedoclean view of the four elements, you know. It has elements of various different gods. I, you know, I mean, I know a lot of pagans who work equally with paradigms and sort of pantheons that wouldn't normally work together, you know. That you have then got your chaos magicians who work with the Lovecraftian gods. Well, do you know what? Within a few years of the play Dr. Faustus coming out, people were putting Mephistopheles in serious grimoires. So, you know, that's that's nothing as new as under the sun. And that fairyship shows that it's okay for living religions to have lots of different elements. And that we shouldn't be trying to do this thing of distilling down to the most pure single thread of a thing. Because it doesn't matter, because that's not how living religions are. Once a religion starts doing that, that's when you know it's a dead religion. Um, that's when you know it's become something to put on a shelf in a museum and look at because it's no longer melding, it's not a cup of tea anymore, it's a picture of a cup of tea.
And so that's what I take from it. My thanks go to John for spending the time to talk about his research. John is the first of a number of excellent guests lined up for Season 2 of the Folklore Podcast. If you would like advanced knowledge of who is coming up and what they will be discussing, please sign up for our free monthly newsletter at www.thefolklorepodcast.com. The Folklore Podcast is really growing, and it's down to your support. The cheapest and quickest way of doing this is free. Please visit us on iTunes and leave a good star rating and a written review. This helps to find an even bigger audience and gets us noticed. And the more we get noticed, the bigger things could lie ahead. In support of this episode, our guest John has written an exclusive blog article which expands on some of the things that he discussed in his interview. To accompany this, the usual e-magazine supplement for this episode has a full transcript, illustrations and research and reading suggestions provided by John, which can be used in conjunction with his blog. You can download the supplement from our website for 99p, and John's blog is available free. The link for this is on our guests page on the website. Remember, by being a patron of the Folklore Podcast, you can access all of our supplements for just a dollar a month. For $5 a month, you can also hear all of our extra member-only mini-episodes or watch our films. We're just a few dollars away from our first goal, which will enable us to launch a full web store and start releasing old folklore documents in new ebook form with extra notes and also audio releases. To become a patron at any level and get great rewards, please visit www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. We're just organising our first batch of patron t-shirts. I hope those who've qualified really like those when they arrive. Also, in support of our shop, we've launched a survey on our website. You can find the link on the homepage, and please, if you listen regularly, do quickly fill in the survey. It's only nine questions long, and it will help us to tailor our future output, how we put the show together for you, and what you'd like to see on our store when it comes to fruition. So please pop onto our website at www.thefolklorepodcast.com and take our survey. The Folklore Podcast's art director is Melissa Martell. Visit her website at www.mdmcreate.com to see more of her work. The Folklore Podcast theme tune is written and performed by Gurdy Bird.